Hello and welcome back to Bit of a Tangent. Amidst all the coronavirus angst, we thought it would be a good time to bring you something a little more light-hearted. About a month ago, Jared and I sat down with microphones, whiskey and wine and exchanged some rapid-fire questions. We hope you find the discussion as amusing and thought-provoking as we did. It certainly gets a lot more personal towards the end. I apologize in advance for my vocals in the recording. I was a little under the weather at the time. And I should also note that the epistemic status of the episode was definitely influenced by the drinking. You probably shouldn't take anything that follows too seriously. But if you enjoy the episode, please share it with friends and family, as that's the only way podcasts like ours can grow and reach more ears. And uh, if you don't enjoy the episode, then find our Twitter handles in the show notes and send us hate tweets. We dare you. And without further gilding of the lily, here's the somewhat inebriated episode of Bit of a Tangent. So yeah, you've definitely got the right idea with the with the neat whiskey. I didn't uh, didn't plan ahead enough, but uh, I had this some is, wine. This yeah. is from Nick, so cheers to him. Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> Nick. If you're listening, hopefully he's listening. I don't know. I, I, in my experience, the closer someone is to mm. me, the less they want to listen to the podcast. And I understand with the exception that. of mothers, with the exception of mothers, I think. I don't know about your mom, but my mom, my mom, she 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 starts if if we go like three days late on the on the upload schedule, which is frequently, she'll she'll send me a message. Like, what hey, uploads? you haven't been uploading. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think I've noticed your mom is way better at this than 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 mine. So clearly, you know, uh, my mom just doesn't love me as much. But <laughs> I think she, I mean she's just behind, and then she'll come to me. And I'll chat. I'll be like, oh, mom, what did you think? And she'll be like, what do you mean? Mom, about the podcast. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I just, you know, there's other stuff to do. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. No, and she's not. She's down the priority queue. Being unfair. She is, she's um, good. <laughs> let, me, let me turn down the brightness of this lamp. It's like killing me here. I mean, I probably look super orange to you. but yeah, I was going to say, the orange. tanning in... Get the incredible. Donald. Let me tell you, folks. <laughs> they thought they could impeach me. <laughs> wow. One, one sip of wine and he's well on his way to Trump impressions. Yeah. I mean, I suspect at <sighs> the end of this. So let's tell everyone listening what our plan is. So basically, because there's nothing original in podcasting, least of all <laughs> on this show, apparently. Yeah, exactly. What we're going to do is we're going to copy the idea that Tim Ferriss and Peter Atia had on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and we're just going to go round and round answering three questions, right? And I think the questions are, uh, what's something you changed your mind on in the last 12 months? What are you excited about? And then the third one is uh, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? And I guess this will be a sort of retrospective on life as it's gone so far. Yeah, well, seeing as how it is 2020, the uh, the power of the hindsight bias should be... Oh, please don't make that joke. <laughs> ...ever powerful. You, you say that, and normally I would agree, but think about this. At the end of this year, no one will ever be able to make those jokes ever again. 
So really what you're doing is a commentary on the fleetingness of life, the ephemeral nature of all phenomena. Everything exactly. is intangible and transient. Exactly. The, the thing that makes puns beautiful is their ephemerality, right? Like no. knowing, knowing that a pun can never be made again. You know, like when you have a pun that just brings together two things that have never been brought together in human history and never will again, like those are the best kinds of puns. As a, as a, as a connoisseur of puns, I, I, can, I can firmly stand by that statement. As someone who generally doesn't enjoy them, I can fully disagree. <laughs> maybe finally, that, maybe finally. That, maybe. It's taken us 24 episodes, but we finally found something on which we fundamentally disagree. <laughs> <laughs> maybe one of us will have changed our minds by the end of this. Yeah, maybe under Orman's agreement theorem, we now have to fight to the death. You know, I've been waiting for a good duel, and this is clearly going to yeah. be why. Uh, yeah, duel of the wits. This is, this, is, this is it, folks. This is what you've tuned in for. Mm. So, should we just dive right in for, for fear of being too inebriated to finish if we, if we make uh, any time for small talk? There we go. All right. So, let's start with you. What have you changed right. your mind on? And I think we can give uh, multiple answers on this. So Yeah, definitely. Just Well, well my, my plan was that we would just keep kind of looping through and come back to new ones as, as they occur to us. Probably, as is, as is customary, the tangential nature of, of our conversations will inspire new thoughts and uh, bring new things to our attention as we go so all right let's do it cool so something i've changed my mind about recently uh this one this one might be a little polarizing but hear me out so a few months ago i saw the documentary game changes on netflix mm. um for those of you who don't know it's a mm, it, it's it's a it's a pro vegan documentary that makes the argument that not only is avoiding all animal products um like morally better and environmentally better but it's also better for athletic performance um and and given what i know from my um granted armchair knowledge of nutrition and and health and fitness and properties of of the human body wait you're um, telling me you don't have a phd in nutrition yeah how dare i speak what? on these topics at all right do you know how to read um, a forest plot <laughs> Oh my god! See, see, like that was that was damn. That was well timed. Yeah, yeah, was well timed. So. Keep telling you, what have you changed right. your mind on? So, um, so, so normally I would have disagreed with the, the core thesis of the documentary out of hand, right? I would have stood by the argument um, based on my priors of, okay, well, yes, it's probably more ethical not to eat animals, and it's probably more environmentally sound. But you know, you're making trade offs for your personal nutrition. Like humans are. Um, evolutionarily optimized for omnivory. Uh, but the, the documentary, I, I didn't know what it was about when I started watching it and it was quite uh, really? engaging. The, the it was very well didn't done. give it away? No, I, honestly, I don't, I've disabled a lot of my um, Netflix like um, promo stuff. So like autoplay and like the, um, all the fancy glitz and stuff. So I literally was just like, oh, what's this about? Let me hit documentary, cool, whatever. Sounds interesting. Um, it's, it's incredibly slick in, in the editing. It's very well made. As, as a piece of film, it's very well put together. But there were a few things that made me feel quite uncomfortable along the way, and that sort of rang some alarm bells for me. But on the whole, I could feel very like emotively persuaded by it. And, and as an aspiring rationalist, this was like firing you know, synapses and ringing bells and putting up red flags and every other um, analogy there that you like. And so I watched it and I felt myself very emotionally persuaded by it, but yet 
finding a lot of things that I thought, hey, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't seem like anything approaching scientific or that study that they're talking about all the time seems like a really big deal. Why haven't I heard about that when I've instead heard about other studies that seem like less of a big deal yeah. in my casual reading? But yet I found it did spark a change in my behavior and it sparked a lot of cognitive dissonance. Um, and what I changed my mind about was then the, uh, I believe it's Chris Kesser. Is it Chris, I'm saying I that right? Chris yeah. Chris Kesser did a... Uh, interview on Joe Rogan and essentially went through all the claims and statements that were made and contrasted them with the scientific consensus as best as he could ascertain it um, and pointed out a lot of interesting things that also tackled the environmental arguments, if not maybe the moral ones and even the moral ones to some extent. And 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 those things concurred much more with what I had, had known before. So I guess I changed my mind about that as in, as in how it affected my diet and the things I was eating on a daily basis. I definitely was made much more aware of eating meat and, and an aversion to it um, and animal products in general. It definitely impacted my diet and my level of like cognitive dissonance just went through the roof. And then when I heard the interview with Chris Kresser, it updated me and changed my mind in a number of ways. And, and, and it was interesting to note that whenever I pendulum like that, it's, it's, it's around certain topics that are complex and like multivariate, like nutrition and eating is, right? You've got morality, you've got environmental, you've got taste and enjoyment, you've got social aspects. There's so many things going into it aside from just fueling your body. Right. Um, and, and noticing how my emotional side could pendulum me like that, even though there was a contradiction with my more rational thought processes was very interesting. So I guess there's the, there's the superficial level in which I changed my mind one way and then back on the kinds of things I eat on a regular basis. And another way in which I changed my mind on how I evaluate evidence in domains that I'm not well versed in particularly, like as in domains where I don't read the scientific literature, I rely on other people to convey that information to me. So you're saying that you've become a vegan. This is how you're going to break this to right. me. That's it. Episode 24. And, and that's, that's, that's the end of it, folks. 25. <laughs> I don't know. What is this? Um, no, okay, so no, so no. Aside. what I have done, yeah, what, what I have, have done? done, which is, which I, which I think is, which I think is kind of, I mean, cool. if it was, if you were a vegan, it would already be in your Instagram bio, right? So I would have, oh, I would have already yeah. known. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, jokes aside. So, so the, the, the moral arguments for veganism or at least vegetarianism have always been very persuasive to me, but yeah, yeah it just didn't ever affect a behavior change, um, for an extended period. Um, but what, what Chris Kresser brought up is the fact that if you're now switching from eating beef and uh, poultry and things of that nature to eating a lot of like soy-based products, essentially, uh, you're now still having to cultivate those and they take up a large area of land. And, and to process them with modern agricultural techniques, you end up killing a lot of organisms along the way unintentionally, right? Um, I mean, not even just insects, like, like, like field mice and, and birds um, and, and other higher life forms that we would generally have feelings and moral concerns about. Um, on a varying spectrum, at least. Um, and moreover, that strong environmental argument that's always made about the um, effects of, say, methane coming from beef was always very persuasive to me. And it did get me to reduce the amount of beef I ate. Right. But Chris talks about um, some farming techniques, and I haven't admittedly looked into them in more detail, but about how you can actually make a pastoral um, agricultural system work in such a way that it can be a carbon sink now, I mean, I've, I've I've not heard this from many sources, so it, I mean, maybe I'm just uninformed on this, but at least raised the question of, hey, it's not just, um, you know, cut and dry. There's there's some nuance here. It's much more complicated from that perspective. And then when it came to the nutritional side, well, then there's so much going into it. Um, 
But yeah, my point being, what I ended up deciding to do was, given that this thing is constantly in flux, this debate has so many sides to it, and there's so much emotional rhetoric that's just adding noise to the discussion, what I decided is the best tactic is actually to just be a good Bayesian. Um, so I've obviously got some priors based on what I know about biology and the laws of thermodynamics. And then on top of that, what I'm doing is anytime evidence comes in, obviously weighed in appropriate ways, I'm just using that to update and my behavior directly reflects the update. Okay, so what does that mean concretely? Yeah, please. So I have some degree <laughs> of belief in the evidence um, for either side of the argument. And I just let my habits directly map to that. So let's say I'm like 50% persuaded at any given point in time that I should not be eating meat, right? Uh, beef and pork and uh, poultry. Like maybe fish is a different thing, right? Yeah. But but I'm also like 50% persuaded that I should be eating meat for my health, right? Then what I do is just eat meat 50% of the time I would possibly normally eat meat in, in any other given scenario. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't. That doesn't fully check out right because okay on it checks out if you say mm. like very utilitarian and you say well you've got like this uncertainty over the possible consequences and like the big problem with utilitarianism is always that you don't quite know how to calculate the utilities so let's just say you have yeah. some sort of probability over it but at least intuitively it seems like there are situations that we could both talk about that we would both agree are wrong and going halfway there seems almost as bad as mm. as just going all the way right i mean the person who is you know executing people in some uh prisoner of war camp like, right i guess on the margin shooting half the people because you're 50 percent sure this is wrong <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean you'd say from a utilitarian point of view yeah well it's better than shooting all of them but i don't know if it fully checks out to then say that that's the the, the best move that you could have made it's kind of like Oh, it's never going to be the best move you could have made. My point is just that in in principle, it it should reflect my, based on my ability to predict the future, as right. in which evidence turns out to be more correct, um, it should just minimize overall regret the best. Because hmm. if I go too extreme by picking one extreme or the other, you know, like if you go carnivore diet, you're probably going to have some regrets. If you go full vegan, you're probably going to have some regrets. But what I'm doing is just as evidence comes in, adjusting something that's around the, the middle ground. I don't know, dude. I mean, the it's one thing experiment. I will say is, you know, I mean, if you look at the extremes, it's definitely where you find all the people talking about the positives. I mean, apparently, if you do mm. carnivore or vegan, your life just gets instantly better. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is kind of... Uh, <laughs> which, which, which A is, is um, aside from the, the, the ironic point that you're making, there's a, a subtler statistical point there, which is just like pretty much anything that pushes you away from like a conventional diet is going to affect some changes in your health, right? Yeah. And and the people who get made horribly sick just switch back to what they were doing before. Um, and the people who it makes beneficial changes then go and create uh, influencer pages and various things of that nature. So yeah, <laughs> that's right. an interesting one, man. Like I honestly, like I've, I've essentially declared bankruptcy on finding a conclusion in this domain. I mean, I've been, I've been looking at questions of what I should be eating from a nutritional, moral, uh, environmental standpoint for a long time, many years. Um, and still like, it, it's just, it's just so fraught with misinformation and noise and confusion and complexities and caveats and, and, and levels of separation from the reality. Like there's the things, you know, 
in conceptual space, but like no, like almost no one listening to this works on a farm, just statistically speaking, or who has any connection with what happens on the farms where their food comes from, right? So it's so hard to discuss these things. So I'm essentially declaring bankruptcy to epistemological pure Aristotle pure Aristotelian yeah, classes <laughs> and just going for a stochastic approach that minimizes my overall regret and minimizes the amount of, I don't know, psychological suffering I have to go through due to cognitive dissonance. So it's an experiment, let's call it that. An experiment in Bayesian belief-weighted lifestyle. I guess for me what it really brings up is something that I struggle with, which is mm. the seeming paradox. It's kind of a turtles all the way down phenomenon, right? Where obviously both of us and Almost anyone listening knows that mm. if you have some belief, you should have evidence for that belief, right? But yeah. you run into this sort of meta problem where you go, well, how do you trust the evidence? And nutrition, you see mm. this all the time, right? And the reason that it's so fraught with disagreement is you can just pick a different expert who will show you some different evidence. Then you say, okay, well, maybe we should get a meta-analysis and or a systematic review and we lump a bunch of the studies together and we see what the overall effect is. And then you'll get different exactly. people disputing different systematic reviews and what they mean. And then it becomes this sort of eternal recursive problem of not knowing where to ground mm. your belief. Because on one hand, you want to say, no, no, I should be guided purely by the data. Expert opinion should have at least not that much effect on me. Yeah. But of course, none of us have time to learn everything. And so you mm. come to rely on experts. But then it's about choosing an expert. And you know, you can use some heuristics like, am I you know, showing signs that I, I want something to be true? And am I only looking for that? Am I confirming what I already know or what I want to believe? But even if you then say that you've overcome that kind of trap, I find that you can't find any reliable place to ground out your belief because you'll always be deferring to an expert who will be showing you some data or showing you another expert that you can trust. And even if you're a real expert in something, right? You know, you've gone all the way up to PhD, postdoc, and you know a lot about this area and you're like fully in touch with the data. You're as qualified as you could possibly be to interpret it. Then you just become another one of the people who's interpreting it. And there are people who are just as smart as you with just as good mm. a qualification who will say the exact opposite thing. And then you wonder like, are we all just going to go insane here? And it's not intractable, right? I mean, you end up, but that's the thing, right? So now where you've got, experts of equally good qualifications saying opposite things, then you go to the yep. same kind of blind consensus mechanism. You say, well, what proportion of experts believe this, right? Yeah. So it's like data grounded in consensus, grounded in data, grounded in consensus, and you don't seem to break out at any point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so overwhelming. And, and it's not like this is the case everywhere. I mean, there are definitely fields and disciplines where there is very little ambiguity in how the data should be interpreted. The only sort of disagreements come in with um, like kind of theoretical frameworks, right? So if you take something which admittedly I'm also not an expert on by a long way, um, which is like contemporary physics, like theoretical physics, well, everyone seems to agree on the interpretation of the experimental evidence. It's the theoretical part. It's the perspective theories, right? It's the difference between the Einstein camp and the string theorists and, and all of these different things. But very little of that stuff is grounded in experimental data. But here in the, in the case of nutrition, you've got everyone has access to the same data, but they're all interpreting it totally differently. No, I guess the physicists have access to the same data, right? It's just... Obviously like, like clearly, clearly there's something about the world of nutrition that is either prone to poor summations of the data, like there's a lot of emotion and 
cognitive biases and, and effects like that. Yeah. Or there's inherent noise in the signal that is just so overwhelming as to render analysis pretty much just a function of the noise, right? Like noise in and noise out is essentially what seems to be happening. And so everyone's really just doing what they would do even if you, like on average, everyone's kind of just doing what they would do anyway. I think like the people who didn't want to eat meat were just not eating meat and the mm. people who love meat are just eating meat because everyone can just find an argument to support what they would have done from an emotional standpoint anyway. Well, I think it's kind of grounded in this idea that I at least first heard from, uh, man, what's his name? I want to say Jeffrey Epstein, but that's not the right name. Uh, it isn't Epstein, but it's it's definitely not Jeffrey. Mm. And he talks about, he wrote that book, Range. And he talks about mm. the difference between like kind domains and unkind domains. So like nutrition is an unkind domain just because of how the variables interact and how complicated it can be. And the fact that you don't get to set out nice, well-defined experiments with easy experimental outcomes that you can measure quickly. Whereas physics is in some sense kind. Yes, I mean, the maths is difficult, of mm. course, but most of the things that we care about, at least up till now, we've been able to to experimentally validate, not always for very little money, but at least the questions were always well-defined, even if, you know, you did have to build a particle collider to answer them. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. All right, let's, let's um, pop It's off. David Epstein, by the way. Is it David? Okay, well, let's say David Epstein then. Um, wow, okay, so that's a solid 20 minutes on the first question. <laughs> I, think, I think the rest of them won't be so long, because otherwise we'll never finish. <laughs> that was such a controversial one. Um, man, it's so hard, though, but the level of cognitive dissonance, it just for me, it just isn't worth it to spend that much time thinking about it. Like, even just thinking about it from a personal nutrition standpoint is hard enough. Adding in all the other aspects of morality and environmental friendliness and sustainability, everything else that goes into it, it's, it's just so big and enormous of an issue. And I feel like my time and attention and stress can be spent a lot better in the short term. But, you know, that's a whole nother argument to be making. Anyway, let's jump on to, to you. Let's just go with what's something you've recently changed your mind about. I can do a short one here because there's a good short answer. And that's email. Yeah. I've changed my mind about email. And it's largely due to having my perspective changed by Sam Altman from Y Combinator. Okay. And, and, and here's the thing, right? I'm, I have been and probably still am historically terrible with email can confirm <laughs> yeah i think you're probably confirming just general communication skills but email in particular i think i kind of drank the tim ferris um carl newport kool-aid here and i was like this is distracting it's inhibiting my ability to do deep work it's inhibiting it's fracturing my focus and attention mm. i'm just going to cut it out i'll disable all notifications I wouldn't even check it. And also, I mean, it was partly because I just really hated it. I just don't enjoy <laughs> replying to email. So yeah. for, I guess, the last three years, I think I've sent less than 15 emails. Wow. <laughs> Maybe less than 10, honestly. I could check my sent, my, my outbox, I guess. But I would be surprised if it was more than, more than 30. It's dead. That's incredible. And what I heard Sam Altman talking about is he kind of drew a very interesting correlation between the best founders that they had at Y Combinator mm. and the rapidity of their replies to email. And so he said like it was a consistent pattern that the best people that they were getting and funding, if you yeah. sent them an email, they would reply with something actionable in five minutes, almost as a rule. And I thought about mm. this and then he spoke more about it. 
I think I think it was on Tyler Cowen's podcast. If you want to go and look this up, but he was talking about how the best people, instead of leaving you hanging, they kind of both respect that you've emailed them and they take definitive pointed steps. So it doesn't have to be this lengthy reply. I mean, it could just be one word or or two words mm-hmm. or a sentence. But what they're doing is tying off loose ends and getting things done. And I think what I realized is that my tendency not to do it reflects poorly on my ability to get the small things done. And to there's something that happens when you keep someone in the loop, which is like really rewarding for them. So, I mean, I yeah. noticed that, you know, of those few emails that I did send, the few people that got back to me really quickly, it was much more likely that some sort of conversation would spring up and that something useful would come out of it. Whereas people who mm. get back to you days later, there's sort of a momentum that dies off. And yep. if you keep people in the loop and updated quickly, you make that less likely. So that's a small thing which I've changed my mind on. And I'm now I'm now in email rehab. I'm becoming more connected. <laughs> email rehab. Okay, um, next time I need to get hold of you, I'll just send you an email then. If you oh, don't get back to me in five minutes, then then I'm not then funding your startup. You, yeah, don't fund it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's a really interesting point. And I remember that sticking out to me as well. Um, and I also did, I think, have a little update based on that when I heard that um, podcast episode um, with Sam Altman that you you recommended to me. But then I, I, I updated again in the other direction. Well, maybe in a third direction, <laughs> um, in the Z axis, yeah, I guess. You went orthogonal. Um, I went orthogonal um, when I listened to a fantastic interview with Donald Knuth. Yes. Um, Donald, Donald Knuth. I don't even know how you, yeah, um, on, on the Lex Freeman podcast. And Donald Knuth, he, he's, I mean, people in, who've done any computer science will probably have heard of him because like there are a lot of algorithms named after him. Um, and I think he won a Turing Award at, at, at some point along the way. But he's famous for not having used email at all since like the 80s and, and just being so reclusive. The only way to get hold of him is to send him like physical mail in the post. And then he responds to it in batches after one month when his secretaries had time to like go through it. This is the guy who's like invented a whole bunch of algorithms, won like some great prizes in computing and literally wrote the textbook on like computer programming. I mean, he's he's the real deal. And uh and 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 I think there's something to be said for that, like a startup founder and a guy who's just thinking deeply about the fundamentals of how to represent data and information and process it are doing very, very different things. So I think that it's this case of conflicting advice need not be contradictory, um, which we spoke about yeah. in, in the earlier episode um, first with one the 19 the year, great right? ideas. Yeah. yeah. Um, from 2019 um, link in the show notes but <laughs> it, it's this idea of like yes if you are the kind of person who's doing a managerial or executive type of job then yes maybe replying instantly is actually better but if you're that kind of recluse deep thinker flow state type of person who doesn't really get that much value out of any of the emails you send then maybe even less emails better so i think your point is valid but the distribution of its validity is not uniform, right? <laughs> and I think that's true for most. That's true for most suggestions, right? Yeah. So it's like at this point in your life, for you, that makes probably a lot more sense. But I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely it's it's not for everyone. I think the having both advice, both bits of advice out there, is useful. But yeah, let's let's jump on to the next question. All right. So what are you excited about? And and wait, can I quickly grab another drink? I'll let's do it. Be a second. What is something I'm currently excited about? So I just had a meeting uh, today with the uh, PhD student who's going to be supervising a little pilot project that I'm doing over the next few months. Yeah. And 
he has got a lot of experience in the domain of using reinforcement learning in medical applications. And what's really cool about that is that it, medical data poses a series of really interesting challenges, like incomplete data, the fact that decisions made from the data can have life-altering consequences, the fact that the outcomes are quite noisy signals, and the fact that you've got physicians, your your ilk, uh, just My getting ilk in the way kind. and deciding to do things that are off the algorithmic prescription. How dare you? I'll have it? you know, I'll have you know, <laughs> in the last two days, I got two spinal anesthetics in. One was took two tries and the second I got first try. And today Impressive. I got the airway in first try both times. So my kind is doing amazingly right now. <laughs> amazingly. You specifically, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're off the, well, you're off the this distribution. At least was specific. Your standard deviations. Yeah, this was, that, was, so. that was what the millennial, no, the gen, what is it, gen Zs? They call that weird flex. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Continue. Um, so, so obviously medical data poses a lot of these challenges, and this is something I've grappled with before in a supervised learning context. Um, but my project is going to focus on doing N of 1 studies, which are like a special case of medical data in, in that they're really, really tricky, um, especially when you are the subject and the experimenter, because it's really, really difficult to compensate for biases and assumptions, and you can't blind yourself in any way. So... Um, it's really challenging. And I came across some really interesting techniques that he shared with me today on how you can use reinforcement learning in these kinds of domains. And what's really cool about it is you can take something that would be quite difficult to compose as a supervised learning problem. Like when you're talking about like, my project is to try and predict sleep based on other lifestyle parameters like consumption of alcohol and caffeine and CBD oil and melatonin and uh, meal times and exercise and those kind of factors. My mom thinks CBD oil is a drug. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I told her I, I use it sometimes and she told me that I, I really need to not use drugs. Okay. Yeah. Well, 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 my mom listens to the podcast and, and, and she's also, she used CBD oil before I did. So, so maybe there's some correlation oh, there okay. between, uh, between, uh, if you get it, if you get it to listen to the, the, the podcast more, maybe she'll, she'll, uh, she'll align with you as, as per Allman's agreement theorem. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Sh shout out, shout out to the moms if they're listening. Um, yours but, will be, mine won't. <laughs> mine, mine will be, yeah. Um, hi mom. Uh, so What's what's really interesting about these approaches is that instead of having to treat, in my case, every day's worth of data as an independent sample, you can, or having to come up with some really convoluted way to, to chain them together, you can treat it as a state space. And f for the purposes of time, I'm not going to go and explain all the inferential steps here that what? people might need. If, you, if you're interested, you can, you can go look it up. But, but imagine that each day is a, or each morning, let's say, that I wake up is like some state. And then there are a whole bunch of actions I can take. Um, and each action takes you to a new state, right? And landing in a state gets you a certain reward. This is the fundamental premise of reinforcement learning. So now what I can do is I can treat things like having a coffee or some alcohol or taking CBD or going for a workout as an action. Yeah. And then there's a new state that occurs after the action and, and you can uh, associate rewards with that. And eventually you end up in this sleep state that has some reward associated with the quality of the sleep. I say to Jared as he twirls his whiskey. Yeah. It's good for, it's not good for sleep. 
And so the beauty of this is that you can do something called off-policy learning, where you essentially rely on, okay, the the RL agent doesn't get to choose the policy, this this the thing that describes what actions to take. It doesn't get to do what it wants to do. It just kind of has to observe what what you did. And you can see how this applies to like medical data where you can't just throw your algorithm at some patients until it gets better. You have to start with a really high standard. So you just train from what the physicians did and then you improve from there if you can. And so you can do this off policy learning and then from there start making suggestions. And this is the part that got me really excited is that with something like supervised learning, like let's say you do a standard linear regression and let's say I get 95% accuracy on my ability to predict sleep. That's fantastic. Now you can go look at all your like covariates here and you can see how much each thing affects the outcome that you care about, right? And most likely what you'll find is something like alcohol so negatively affects your sleep that you should just never drink if you want to optimize for sleep. Okay, but that's entirely unhelpful to me because I want to drink some alcohol. I don't just care about having the optimal sleep, right? It's it's not it's not my final goal. It's it's just a goal on the way to some other goals. But with the reinforcement learning, what I can do is I can design a reward function and optimize for that. So I can include things like social happiness, a certain number of drinks per week, all of these other factors in that reward function. So the beauty of that is it's much more like how humans think about problems and about optimizing things in the real world. Mm-hmm. So it, it's mapping that into the way the problem is optimized. And, and by being able to construct that reward function, I can encode the things I really care about as opposed to like, like the terminal objectives, not just, or, or some approximation of them at least, not just some metric that I happen to pick. So it seems like it's slightly less susceptible to Goodhart's law and, and will lead to some interesting ideas. So how does this relate to like the ideas of reward modeling or inverse RL? Is it related at all? Um, I don't know. I've literally just had the idea this afternoon okay. um, of some of these aspects and, and just started thinking about it. So I don't know. There might be relations that I didn't see at first. And if I think about it, it will occur to me. Um, and I really just don't know enough about inverse RL to, to say. But but yeah, in, in some sense, by I, I'm able to construct the reward. How I'll go about doing that, what nature that will have, I'm not sure. But it seems really cool that you can specify these more complex connections between things that we really care about and i can specify that explicitly as the goal and the ability to do the off policy learning and treat each data point as an action as opposed to just part of a row in a table Mm. means that i I can i can really leverage well you're getting so much more value out of your data Mm. because you can kind of you can kind of see what actions to take in certain spaces so i feel like you'll get a lot more value from your data than if you're treating it as a standard supervised learning problem in which case having a few hundred data points is just not enough yeah um so we'll see yeah i think that that notion is kind of what i was hand-wavingly trying to get across in the last episode we recorded Mm. where we very briefly spoke about you know supervised and unsupervised learning and we just mentioned Mm. rl reinforcement learning as as an afterthought but I think it's for this very reason that you get this tremendous flexibility and this ability to view data dynamically rather than as something static that you just learn a statistical pattern on. That's yeah. very interesting. Because it also allows me to ask questions like within the day, which is what I ultimately care about, right? The the medical domain and the modeling my life have the same property of like, you want to be able to know what action I should take, not just mm. what the outcome is likely to be or what things affect the outcome. You want to be able to go, it's 5 p.m. in the afternoon and I feel like having another coffee, but what is what are the trade-offs there? Like if I have a coffee now, 
how much does it impact my sleep negatively and how much does that lead to like negative outcomes? Like you want, you want the answer to questions like that. Yeah. And it seems like this RL approach inherently is modeling it in that way. And in so doing might be able to answer those questions. And, and um, my supervisor's done work on this in medical domains, granted with more data, um, as well as some other large studies on multiple individuals and found it to be very um, effective and really interesting. So that bodes well. Nicely done. So yeah. What about you? What is exciting you at the moment other than your glass of whiskey? Yeah. Uh, so I think the spirit I'll take when I answer this, because I, I had... <laughs> is, to, is your whiskey. That, that's the spirit you'll, you'll take. Yeah. So that's that pun part that we talked about me not liking. <laughs> <laughs> so I, when I thought about this earlier, because I was thinking, God, what am I excited about? And I realized when I look in the medium term future, the thing that I most want to happen that would mm. like that it would excite me. I mean, there's lots of things that I want to happen in the same way that you think about sort of veganism. Like, you know, I just want mm. to eat less meat, but it doesn't excite me as, as a prospect. What excites me is this convergence of a few things which I think are now possible, right? The one would be augmented reality, AR, right? That we can easily interface with. And what that would mean is, you know, not like some ridiculous VR Oculus headset that you now are blind or blinded by and tethered by a cable, but like a lightweight pair of glasses that could project information directly into your eye, right? That coupled with a few things, you need to couple that with the ideas of Glenn Weil, right? Quadratic voting and quadratic funding. You need to couple that with basic ideas from the blockchain or, or any sort of ledger system where multiple people can independently and verifiably confirm some action or status. You need to combine that with Robin Hansen's ideas of prediction markets and futarchy and their sort of related idea of idea markets. And the world that you get when you combine all those things, if they were to work, is a world where, first of all, a lot of the dumb stuff that at least I know that I have to do as, you know, someone in the medical field, like remember drug doses, which I just don't enjoy, that problem disappears the instant that you have some sort of mechanism for just projecting the right dose of something right in front of your eyes, right? I mean, mm. already to some extent, cell phones have made that kind of memorization more obviously silly, right? Yeah. But once you never even have to look down at a screen and, and stop what you're actually doing, right? Once you can still continue to draw up the drugs and you can project with augmented reality the exact amount that you need to fill some syringe with, right? Using a combination of like machine learning to tell you how much, and, and AR to project it onto the syringe, you're suddenly able to really bring computing into the real world in a way that is tangible. And the reason that the rest of those things are interesting, right, the sort of blockchain and Glenn Weil's ideas about um, QV is because you start to be able to do things and fund things, like projects that you couldn't before, right? So again, we speak so often about coordination problems and having a mechanism where you can see like public buy-in to an idea or to a project and then be able to contribute with a really simple way to like show your backing, like either a vote or a payment. I mean, it could be something really, really simple, like, hmm, what example do I want to use? It could be simple, right? Like the road that you drive on all the time has a pothole, right? And now obviously everyone who drives over that road has a vested interest in that pothole being fixed because it damages the car. And with AR, right, first of all, it becomes much easier to interact with the world, right? Just highlight on your screen that little piece and make it visible to all other users. So you already start reducing the damage because everyone knows about it beforehand, right? Right, yeah. But secondarily, you could say like, you could make a conditional sort of 
blockchain-based smart contract that says, if everyone else is willing to put in $10 for this to be fixed, then here I'm putting in $10 and this payment will be activated as soon as enough other people have done it. And then you could project how much of that contract has been fulfilled. And so people can see that their efforts aren't wasted, right? A lot of the reason that you don't give more money often is just because you think that your efforts are wasted. But if you knew how many other people were willing to do the same, then suddenly it doesn't feel like your isolated $10. It feels like you and the entire community around you who are also willing. And so you can see that yeah. it's not $10, it's actually $1,000. And you can also see the people who fix potholes in the ground saying, we're willing to accept this contract at this level. So there's pre-commitment. There's, it's just, it's a vision of a world which is, I don't think unattainable, right? This is not sci-fi stuff in that mm. the kinds of things you're asking to do are, we don't need anything fundamentally new. We need sort of optimizations, right? We need lighter weight headsets, for example, but everything else yeah. already exists and the theory behind it exists. And this idea of being able to interface with the real world computationally is is hugely powerful. And I think I haven't fully thought that's through true. the implications. And that's what that's the next technological thing that I think will excite me and make me geek out a lot. Dude, that's that's really, really cool. I like that. It, it makes it so much more tangible, right? The AR is, the augmented reality there is, is really doing a lot to make the conceptual points salient to, to make it like something that confronts you, right? Because it's no good if it's hidden away on some governmental website or buried deep in the settings menu of some app. But like if you walk past the park and you can see a progress bar next to it, like you would on Kickstarter. Like why do like video how games funded so well, this is? Right? Yeah, exactly. Because like, it's immersive. There's a program. There's there's a progress bar for your current level, or how much you've already defeated mm. this boss, or even something simple like the tutorial for video games often have this kind of AR style overlay. Like push yeah. this to jump, and then the character will do it, right? And then you can see the effects of taking that action. I mean, imagine mm. if I mean this is a really simple one, but your car breaks down, right? And most and most cars these days have at least some level of computation attached to them. So they can probably tell you what's wrong. And imagine if it just needed you to change something in the engine bay. I mean, it was, it was simple enough that if you read the manual in a current car, you could do it. It's just that to translate, you know, those pictures, which are very static and they're always poorly printed. And maybe it's something simple, like you need to replace your spark plugs. Like, I, exactly. I, I don't know how to do that. But if you could overlay like if you could make the spark plugs flash, like in a video game, you would, right? Oh yeah, exactly. And then an arrow appears Press as, e you to repair. as you took it out, right? It's telling you, first of all, which way to turn it, where to put it, oh, man. right? And it's just it's just highlighting areas to do it. Like for me, I want the world to be like this. I want oh, absolutely silly things that are inconvenient to become mm. not inconvenient. And the cost of doing this, this is the important thing, right? The cost of doing this is is low or non-existent in the sense that you don't have to innovate. This is all stuff. This is all procedural knowledge that we know how to do and is already encapsulated in manuals and books and apps and dictionaries all around the world. It would just be yep. making it useful in a way that we currently don't. So that's, that's what I'm excited by. That's super cool. Now you've got me excited about that too. Um, as, as with all things of this nature, I, I always wonder how do you get from here to there like, how do you get people to begin adopting it? What do you use to break the current status quo and, and shift everyone over to a new one? Um, but while I was thinking about it and while you were talking, it just occurred to me that there might be certain domains that might sort of bootstrap that, right? So for instance, let's say we start sending some people to Mars. Well, these people are going to need a lot of skills and they're not going to have access to the internet in the way that we do here on Earth because there's like th up to 30 minutes of delay to send information to and from Mars. So you would probably have to encode a lot of skills and information 
in some way that few individuals who are kind of meta skilled can then use, right? So that's like a perfect example of where you might apply that augmented reality version of changing your spark plugs. Um, because now you can do repairs on a system you didn't design and know virtually nothing about just by being able to follow instructions generated by the expert who did know all about them, but is, you know, 30 minutes, 30 light minutes and millions of kilometers away. So that seems like an example of a way we might um, sort of trigger the adoption of the technology. And then once it's, once it's cool, once astronauts have it, then, you know, everyone else will want it. Um, That's how it works, right? Um, So yeah, but but there might also be other domains of that nature where it it inherently, like maybe the military might adopt it and something like that in the US because it just would offer such a strategic advantage and then it would start leaking back into civilian life Mm. and things like that. Because I'm always wary of like the, how do you solve the meta coordination problem? It's like, hey, we've solved the coordination problem, but how do we now get everyone to use that solution? Well, that's another coordination problem and Mm. it's the same kind of thing. So it's always something, yeah, that I wonder about. Okay, but yeah. Let me ask you now. So, knowing what you know now about whatever domain you want to talk about, what would you do differently, and tell me why? Well, this this is definitely influenced by um, the email that I got this morning. But it would be something along the lines of go far less bullish on publishing academic works in peer reviewed journals. I'll share like what every uh, essentially they essentially they just came back after after a round of minor revisions. There was then an editor change additional reviewers brought on out of nowhere the original reviewers are like no cool we're happy with all the changes being made this is suitable for publication but these new imaginary anonymous reviewers and this new editor have now decided that this this paper has all of these methodological flaws that somehow no one noticed before mm-hmm. so um so so already i can i can just hear my little uh, mental emulation of uh, eric weinstein just talking about like the what distributed idea suppression complex and, and all of these <laughs> things but uh but but just just the sheer uh, inadequacy, right? Just the sheer inadequacy of the system is, is is overwhelming to me. Like nobody has to be malicious in this whole system to get an outcome that is just overall crap. And this is just true in so many systems that I look at. And yeah, so just for the specific example, it's like you know my paper was up on archive, which is open access, mm-hmm. months ago, eight months ago, right? My code is open source on GitHub from nine months ago like any researcher out there who types in google scholar queries relating to this work has found the work and can do stuff from it but yet i was like okay well let me still try and publish this in in a journal because in my mind it was like oh you know the peer review process is useful and it helps refine the work and 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 it's important to like show that this thing is valid and etc 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 and the more i've experienced this personally the more i've read about it the more i've heard of other people's experiences by reading um, articles about them or like things that people have said on like the academic side of Twitter <laughs> and and speaking with people directly in, in an academic sphere, the more I'm just realizing how utterly inefficient and wasteful things are. Like yeah. in, in, in the time I've spent working on this paper, preparing it for publication, which we're talking now like a year plus, I could have made more advancements on the research. I could have done other useful, meaningful research. And the whole reason why you would want to submit is for that peer review and that sort of stamp of approval. And yet that seems to be making the work worse and not better by all measures, right? Now, clearly we can't just have everyone putting everything they write on archive and that being science. Yeah. But it there has to be something better. And so if there's something that I would say I regret or wish I'd done differently is just, is just deeply reconsidering 
why it is that I thought that would be a useful thing to do, publishing mm. the work in a peer-reviewed public access journal versus just putting it on archive or versus any, or go, like going to a conference or, or, or something different, right? I mean, I think for everyone listening, it's worth swiping over to Eric Weinstein's The Portal podcast and listening to his opening episode of 2020, I think, where he talks about this distributed idea suppression complex. And I think the most valuable thing he said there, or at least one of the most memorable, was this idea that like peer review, as it's currently done, mm. is being sold as the the epitome of what it is to do good science. And yet it might actually be the cancer that is eating science alive from the inside, right? This eternal yeah. kind of struggle to get something approved and reviewed. Whereas the, the real peer review might be something which happens more akin to a kind of open market of ideas where good papers get cited a lot and talked about a lot and if they are actually in alignment with reality then their results prove useful to other researchers right so the peer review becomes other people choosing to use your work absolutely and i think i think he actually spoke about this more in depth in his discussion with uh brett weinstein his brother when they were talking about that whole crisis that I had no idea about. And honestly, that is was one of the most eye-opening and interesting episodes of any podcast I've ever listened to. So it's definitely worth checking out. But I, I think Eric had the phrase, something along the lines of, the real peer review happens after this sham that we call peer review. Definitely. Right? And, and anyone, anyone who's read more than like a handful of academic papers knows this. You can look at some papers and you're like, how did this possibly get out into the world? This is total crap. This is riddled with errors. So clearly this thing that we call peer review and that everyone likes to throw around as a term isn't actually that valuable because it lets crap through all the time and it stifles good work. Like yeah. I'm not making a judgment on my work here, but I've heard enough stories of people having good ideas turned down again and again and again, only later for people to be like, oh, hey, that's a brilliant idea. And then it gets sort of discovered through some other medium, right? So like clearly it's failing, right? Uh, and yet what happens afterwards is, is the real test of things, right? It, it's like the equivalent, if you couldn't post something on Reddit until it had been reviewed by these anonymous people for like six months, and then only could you post the thing. A, obviously, it's going to be irrelevant because your meme is no longer going to make sense in six months' time. And and B, like, just post it on Reddit. If it's good, it'll get upvoted and then people will see it. And if it's bad, it will get downvoted and people won't see it. Like, like why, why are we not treating our science like we treat our memes? Why is it that, like, why, yeah, like, memes have a better economy and market and review system than our academic papers and ideas? And that's, I mean, that's freaking terrifying, man. Like, so yeah, I would definitely be much more uh, bearish on peer-reviewed journal publications um, looking back. But uh, I guess I guess maybe the takeaway, the silver lining, is that having the experience firsthand and seeing the details of it and the emotive relevance of it might uh, might be good inspiration to to not make mistakes in the future or to change things and improve things in whatever way I can going forward. So maybe that's the silver lining. Yeah, I mean it's shitty for you, man, and. I guess all we can do is propagate this this meme and signal boost mm. Eric Weinstein when he yeah. says like we don't have to accept that that peer review has always been a part of science and yeah. if you think about it from first principles you can maybe see that you're being sold a narrative which is counterproductive to the ultimate end. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, what about you? Looking back, something you regret or wish you had done differently? Yeah, so I won't say regret. I guess there's a kind of philosophical issue with regret. I know we've already spoken mm. about regret minimization. And yep. and of course, you want to live a life that is as free of 
regret is possible and the tool of regret is powerful in steering you but Mm. in the present moment regret is just another way to keep yourself miserable like the thing that you've done is already undoable right i mean Mm. whatever actions you can take are entirely controlled by your present circumstances so that's what i have to say about regret in terms of what i would do differently hypothetically speaking i would do more maths and more physics earlier in my life i think going into medicine relatively young especially because in south africa unlike in the u.s we don't do an undergrad before we go into med school and so i made Mm -hmm. the decision to become a doctor at maybe 17 except Mm -hmm. that unlike people in the u.s who then would have four years or three years i think it's four of an undergrad to either convince them and let them do a bit of growing up that maybe they were wrong i just jumped straight in right and by the time i was four years through i was almost starting to finish off and i was into clinical medicine already right and so now i'm in my final year my sixth year and so i mean like it or not i'm going to finish and i'm going to become a doctor but there's an opportunity cost which i've often spoken of spoken of and i think the way that i've thought about this is like mind building on a deadline yeah so i often think about the degrees of freedom we have as humans in terms of neuroplasticity when we're in our early 20s and our capacity to learn and and really deeply integrate new ideas and new paradigms of thinking right and so i think in fact i know for sure that i'm unwilling to leave this planet and not in the Elon Musk sense, in the dying sense, without mm. a much better understanding of the physical world and the mathematics that underpins it. It's, it almost mm. feels disrespectful to me to whatever it is we've been given as a species to discover, right? Whatever universe we find ourselves in, it feels like I'm doing it a disservice if I cannot grasp some of its majesty and beauty and everything good about it, right? Yeah. And of course, the route to understanding the universe is mathematical, right? And And... And the physics that describes it is underpinned by these very deep mathematical insights. And so because medicine is, first of all, time consuming, and because at least in the way that we do it here, you're not forced into any technical courses, right? I mean, we're very practically minded in that we have a healthcare crisis. And so what is most important for the country as a whole is that we have lots of primary care physicians, right? Which is another way of saying like your sort of frontline basic medical doctors there's no need to have higher aspirations and there's there's genuinely no need for your doctors to know all that much physics at all right aside from the sort of intuitive stuff like if i push at the end of the bone versus the middle which one generates more torque right that's kind of intuitive physics and so it's more my personality and this like yearning i have to understand things better and to be able to contribute in a way that i feel is theoretically meaningful as opposed to this kind of frontline not grunt work it's not that it's it's just it's not the kind of work that i see myself doing and right. i think that if i'd had the opportunity to go back i would spend much more of my earlier life doing more maths and more physics so that i didn't have to catch up so much of it now or at least attempt to mm, yeah no absolutely i'm i mean i could have i could have maybe expected that that would be something you would say also be wary of the fact that like you look back on that now sort of going oh i mean if i was 17 and started studying all the maths and physics that i'm studying now like you know think about the head start i would have had but i think that also underestimates how much you've learned in that time that's been necessary to be able to understand things and the concepts that you grapple with now and use to be able to construct new ideas right like the yeah. web of human understanding and knowledge is a very complex interconnected thing and it, it really does um, have this exponential growth to it. And so 
Yeah, I've I've also had the same sort of feeling. And I think both of our both of our answers to this question have really kind of stemmed from this idea of misused time mm. or or having to of having traded off certain kinds of ways of spending one's time yeah, for other sacrifice things. Sacrifice your early years to this well, on this altar of the mainstream narrative. In your case, this notion yeah. of a peer reviewed journal as being the gatekeeper yeah. towards valid science. And in my sense, the altar of a respectable degree in medical science as opposed mm-hmm. to this more winding path of self-pursued interest exactly um and i think uh, the consolation in your case is probably that of anyone you've done an absolutely amazing job of being able to like have your cake and eat it in the sense that <laughs> you have taught yourself an incredible amount of physics and computer science and programming and theory of machine learning on the side while still getting through and from all reports doing really well at your your medical studies and now you know approaching the end of that i think you're going to be all the stronger for it um and i guess the consolation on my end would just be that yeah it's a it's an experience that's valuable to have from the perspective of realizing where systems have failed in their goals or where the goals are misaligned with the way the systems are structured um, and I think I think in both of our cases, the strong negative emotions surrounding that feeling of waste or of suboptimality is a strong motivating force in the direction of making things better and improving. Um, and I think that is a powerful and useful thing as much as it is uncomfortable for us. Mm. Well, firstly, thank you. You are certainly too kind. I'm never too kind. I'm precisely the right amount of this kindness. Is the wine Must be the wine. <laughs> it's it's affected my uh, it's affected my uh, my my update sizes. You know. Yeah, and and the second thing I'd say is is I think the most important thing that you're hitting on there is is this notion of how much of what is integral to to our personalities and to the sort of life story that we construct is the set mm-hmm. of failures, right? It's it's those it's those things that you feel like in some sense regretful but in other sense it's just the pillar of who you are is the sense of what you've messed up early on and now want to deeply change and so as you say yeah. it, you you could easily fall into calamity here and proclaim that all is lost and there's no time to catch up uh, in my case at least but i take heart at least in the fact that first of all there's no time limits right it can seem that way if you want to compete with your peers and you want to earn the same salary at the same age and get the same attain the same life goals and life stages but you can just as easily shrug that off and 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 truly walk your own path in a way that is not cliche or uh something from an instagram influencer (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think we we probably spend too much of our time we just being people in general probably spend too much of our time having this competition with everyone around us as though it's some zero sum game in the social sense when in reality a lot of things in life are a positive sum game especially in the domains where we are active and, and interested right right like if someone's listening to some other podcasts that doesn't mean that they're necessarily taking attention away from listening to this podcast it means that there's another person out there who's found the value of listening to podcasts and is gaining value from that regardless of what which ones they're listening to and might discover ours through listening to others right in in the same way it's like contributing to scientific progress it's it's not a competition mm. it shouldn't be a competition to see who can publish more things and win more awards and go to more conferences it should be about building on the existing human knowledge and standing on the shoulders of giants and making the kinds of breakthroughs that overcome real challenges in the real world. And that should never be a zero sum game. It can't be, it has to be a positive sum game. And so 
yeah, it just makes me think that so much of what we waste time on is really the status games um, and and how much of that is actually just unnecessary. And I can I can see where maybe some of that comes from in, in, in certain paths that people have taken. And I can see how you can get stuck in that in life when you feel like you're at a point where it's too late to change careers or your focuses. Um, but but I think in general, we, we view far too many things as a zero-sum game because our minds are evolved in an ancestral landscape where it kind of was. There were only very limited resources to go around. Right, exactly. in, in inventing a, a stone axe didn't give you a hundred times um, sort of improvement in your ability to claim resources. Whereas, whereas now, like one or two great ideas in science or technology or engineering can, can give a hundred or a thousand-fold returns. And and given that, it, it, we've got to overcome a lot of those natural instincts to see everything as a competition between everyone around us. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to offer my sort of closing thought on that. And then I'll invite you to either, if you want to go back and answer one of the three questions again, with like a second answer, or mm. give your own closing thought. And I think that's a perfect way to end. Yep, let's do it. So what I'd say on that the sentence that struck me most about what you just said there is this notion of status games and signaling games mm. closely related. And in my head, if I could have answered this last question, right, about uh, what would you change, it's intimately tied in my head to this notion of status signaling. And it's something that we humans find incredibly seductive as an activity because yeah. at the end of the day, signaling your value as a potential mate, as a potential friend, as an ally, right, is connected to all the things which we stereotypically associate with the pursuit or this maybe futile pursuit of worldly attainment right status yeah. position power material wealth that kind of thing and really i think what i'm saying is if i could go back i would do i would do as much as possible to eliminate the parts of myself that do things purely for status right i, I think a large part of growing up for me has been recognizing when i'm doing something purely for the status and the signaling value as opposed mm. to like an, a truly instinct and curiosity driven exploration of what matters to me there are some books that i read because it just seemed like what a smart person should have read and looking back i think well i didn't enjoy the book yeah. i don't even remember it mm. and i probably just sounded like an asshole trying to you know recite some deep message from it whereas all the things where you know i was so interested that i got in trouble you know, I mean, I used to carry a book in my lab coat pocket on um, on ward rounds, uh, and I used to get in trouble because you know I'd be like, I was, I remember reading uh, algorithms to live by in my obstetrics rotation, and I mean, it was dumb, I'll be honest, but <laughs> but you know, I was, I, I couldn't put the thing down, and I finished it yeah. in a couple of days, and it was entirely worth it, and and nothing about mm. that was was signaling, right? That was just, I, I yeah. couldn't stop thinking about it, and so really, what I would love to tell my younger self is not to pursue things where you can feel internally that you're trying to signal or show status. And that is my closing thought. Yeah, that's a very, very poignant and, and useful one. And I think it's it's those kind of examples of maybe eccentricity in some sense, or, or just disregard for what others think, because you're purely so fascinated by the things that are absorbing you and consuming your attention. And I think feel as though channeling more of that sheer joy and fascination and intrigue is a beneficial thing in, in every way. Um, a recent example was a Veritasium video. I think the title was something along the lines of this equation will change how you see the world or something along those lines. It'll be yeah. in the show notes, but it was super, super cool. And it was taken out of 
a example from chaos theory of a function that just goes into sort of a, a collapsed chaotic state when certain parameters are applied, it's very eloquently explained, but it's drawn from population dynamics formulations and, and modeling of that sort, but just really, really cool. And it just brought out such a fascination, like a, what the fuck mind blown had to suddenly start scribbling on walls and pieces of paper <laughs> and just figuring this out. And I probably spent like three hours just playing with like equations and models and learning things and figuring stuff out as I went, because I was just so intrigued and interested in this and that almost childlike wonder and curiosity is such a powerful motivating beneficial thing and i think cultivating more of that more of that eccentricity that playful side that richard feynman epitomized so well can only lead to greater things and enhanced productivity in in so many domains um and i think something that captures that quite well is a quote from eric weinstein from his discussion on the portal podcast with sam harris and he was talking about making progress in science but i think it applies outside of that as well and he said there is a kind of madness that you have to invite to break new ground and there's a kind of sanity that you have to invite to wrestle with the madness and i think that combination of being eccentric and wild and embracing that awkward edge between insanity and brilliance as well as a bit of reality and groundedness and disciplined rationality makes for a combination that is hard to defeat and a very powerful and inspiring thing and if there's a note to leave on i guess that would be mine very well said friend yeah thanks that's been a, a very interesting conversation yeah i've thoroughly enjoyed it um, and that's not just the whiskey talking <laughs> it's not just the whiskey talking <laughs> so what you tell all the girls <laughs> i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation it's not just the whiskey talking. <laughs> no comment that said if you if you use these questions on a date that, that that i could see that going pretty well these are these are pretty good uh dating questions i'd imagine i think I, I i sometimes think this and then i i think i sometimes overestimate the extent to which i'm just going on dates with people who are cognitively similar to you um <laughs> this is also going <laughs> so, to, to me or to <laughs> that sentence is going to confirm the running hypothesis of my roommates that we're dating so okay with, with that said now uh, i guess it's all out in your <laughs> I mean, we, we spend, you know, hours on the phone together. Yeah, no, you, you definitely... We, uh, we keep finishing each other's sentences. Appointment at this point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go, yeah. All right. It's, uh, and, and my mom will know about it, but yours won't. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's how it will go. Uh, yeah, it's been a great chat. Thanks, FRB. Thank you so Until much. Until next sir. time. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening to Bits of a Tangent. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. There you can also find full show notes, which have links to all the great content discussed in the episode. As mentioned in the introduction, we occasionally add bonus content related to the episode or just mention favorite books, organizations, and other esoteric internet stuff. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes or whatever app you get your podcasts from. This lets them know that we're worth listening to and helps new people discover the ideas we discuss. The best way to hear about future episodes is to subscribe to us in your podcast app and, if you're so inclined, to enable notifications. That way you'll know when we've released something new, which is generally about once a week. Lastly, if you know someone who you suspect might enjoy the kinds of things we talk about here, 
consider sharing an episode with them. It really is the only way a podcast can grow authentically. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.